There's a visualization associated with this lesson, and I think we'll start our uh, class tonight by following it. I'll talk more, of course, about what the, the deeper meaning behind this is, but for now, let us just try to put ourselves into it. This is a exercise, a meditative exercise, to put us in touch with our interconnectedness with the world and with all other people. The intention behind this is that one of the great secrets of manifestation is this sense of service and service not based on separateness but the realization that any benefit that anyone experiences is also benefit to oneself because of this underlying unity of consciousness. We can do this as an affirmation, meaning we can serve others as an affirmation of our unity. We can serve others as a dogma. Or we can serve others because we have experienced it. And because we have experienced the unity with others, we know that to hurt them is to hurt ourselves. And of course, that's what we're seeking, is a genuine change of consciousness. So this visualization is given to us to help put us into that reality. So Swamiji suggests first, we're going to visualize our unity with other people on this planet. But he suggests we not think of specific people or specific faces, lest that draw too much attention to the ego in those specific relationships. And not even, in a sense, think of people as individuals, but just a flow of humanity. Think above all of the energy that we are sending out, especially from our heart, as an instrument of the divine to all. Swamiji says, visualize ourselves centered in the heart. Of course, the breath happens, the lungs and the heart are interconnected. The instruction Swamiji gave me once was very simple. He said, rest in the heart. Draw back from the intensity of our preoccupation with our brain and the willpower that comes from the point between the eyebrows in a human sense, pushing with our thoughts, relax and rest in the heart. Endeavor to feel our consciousness centered there, and feel the radiating waves of energy that come from that point. Now Swamiji suggests in a beautiful way that we polish our heart as if it were a silver plate, a circle of silver, and mentally we polish that silver so that nothing um, obscures the radiating light from that point. Let's pause for a moment and feel as if the breath itself passing over the heart 
with every breath, the upward breath, the obscuration of any lack of focus is just washed away by the upward current. And as we exhale, soft cloth of devotion and surrender and rest passes over until that silver orb is really glowing. You can see it as a a plate or a, um, a circle, like a Christmas ornament, a silver Christmas ornament if you like. I think the image of a a, a a sphere is the best. Imagine like a little tiny mirrored ball. Now all the surfaces are shiny and feel great light radiating out from all those surfaces in all directions. Front, side, behind, up, down. Every surface of that shiny silver orb is radiating light in all directions. You can see the outlines of your own body are slightly obscured by the radiant power of that light. The light is bigger and stronger than anything else we can see. Now extend the rays of that light by a conscious act and deliberate act and feel that that light is just going out and you can see the beams of light just penetrating through this whole room and all physical forms, especially the people in the room, the light just goes right into them and right through them, leaving its beautiful emanations inside of them. See that radiant light as it strikes each human form, just expanding to fill that whole form and activating also the same silver orb within them. Feel that light going way beyond this room, just without limit. There's no time or space in the realm in which that light comes. And therefore it can cross planets and countries. Feel that every animate and inanimate being is being touched by that light. Now feel that the source of this light, although radiating from our hearts, is not originating inside of us, but rather is coming through us. Rays of light from a source too immense to perceive. We too are receiving the light just as we're sending it out. It's coming into us and reflecting on all surfaces of that shiny orb of the heart. Feel that light shining on us ever more powerfully. The more powerfully it reaches us, the more bright and powerful the reflections from us the greater the expanse that that light touches. Let us stay in this radiating circle of light 
now for a few moments. And feel as you go the light of yourself, touching the light of all that is. Om peace. Amen. It's very interesting to me, this being the first lesson. Last week I spent um, primarily on the introduction about the different philosophies and the necessity before we are willing to undertake the discipline of changing our consciousness, we have to be deeply persuaded that there's a reason to do it. Before you'll be persuaded to um, relate to the world in a new way, you'll have to be persuaded that there's a reason to do it. And the main reason we do anything is because we believe that in some way it will increase our happiness and diminish our suffering. Um, Master wrote a whole book. He called it The Science of Religion. Swamiji rewrote that book and called it God is for Everyone. He took the Master's ideas. That uh, The original book, Science of Religion, was not actually written by Master. His, uh, a disciple of his took Master's ideas at Master's request and wrote that book. So Swamiji felt as a disciple he could also write it. And uh, he wrote it called God is for Everyone. And the premise of that book was very simple. Master's premise, the science of religion, before he came to America, he tried to think how he was going to land on these shores in 1920 when no one knew anything about this teaching and persuade extremely materialistic Americans that there was you know, something uh, for them to, to learn and to do from this at that time, exceedingly obscure um, way of life from a culture so very different than the one that um, we were living in at that time. Now, all these years later, to know, in, uh, in most of, much of the credit does belong to Yogananda for establishing the beachhead and plowing the field, um, these ideas are at least better known than they were before. Not necessarily better understood, but better known at least. And... So Master tried to think, what is the universal, non-dogmatic, completely non-institutional, all-denominations concept that I really want to put across? And it was such a simple one, which is every living being, not merely humans, are all seeking the same thing. And what we're seeking is to escape suffering and to experience what we might call happiness, but more truly is described as bliss. The difference between bliss and happiness, if we're going to make distinctions in English, is happiness has some identifiable cause as a rule, but bliss is the natural state of our being. And what we're really trying to experience, even in seeking happiness, is what we really want is unchanging, everlasting bliss. Now, um, eventually, if you really study it deeply enough, as Master explained and Swami explained in the book God is for Everyone, you realize that when you trace it down far enough, that which you're seeking and can experience is infinite and everlasting. Thus we come to words like God, which in English are, uh, is not a very useful word in a real sense. Because if you think about the word God in English, it has actually no definition. I mean, people start imposing definitions upon it. And many times people come into our temple or our classes and their mindset is that they're atheistic, at least agnostic sometimes and often atheistic. And they're not necessarily atheistic from actually experiencing that there's no infinite spirit, that there's no God, 
They're atheistic because every definition of that word God that's been offered to them and many actions taken in the name of those definitions they have found repugnant or incomprehensible or childish or whatever it might be. And so their atheism is based on the utter rejection of every concept of God that they'd been offered. Um, And oftentimes I'm right in there with them even though I'm a deep devotee and a great believer in God, but I'm not a believer in God the way it's often defined. So Master is trying to explain through that the science of religion and Swami through God is for everyone. He's trying to explain that what that infinite state of bliss that we're all seeking, and we long for that, we long for it because it's our own nature. And then through long and beautiful discussions that I'm not going to go into at all in great length here, we come back to the word, that we have to come back to the word God because there is no other. This is a becoming a, a, a cause that I don't know how to exactly to embrace because I, I've been reading recently in various, um, what, what would you call it, books and magazines and articles by people who are trying to bring in a new state of consciousness. You know, my cronies, my colleagues in this work. Except there's this huge movement, and you always see it, and they just write it like, you know, everyone who was a non-theistic spirituality, non-religious spirituality, which means we'll do everything but use the word God. We'll torture the language, we'll twist the facts, we'll work as hard as we can, but we'll never refer to God. It's all about us. And... uh, Really, it's just another kind of materialism. And they're falling exactly into what I was talking about last week, which is sometimes when people try to expand their powers, they just expand their ego, sort of elevating their ego to another level and calling it altogether something else, but but without really cognizing a power totally beyond our egoic self, even if we're doing it just as a devotional exercise, then too often we just get really confused. And so some people who embrace this way of this non-theistic spirituality, some of them are light, but many of them are not. Many of them, when you're in their presence, you might be in the presence of power, but you're not necessarily in the presence of joy or even in the presence of love because all that you're in the presence of is a supercharged Um, sense of self with a small s. Now, we don't want to go there. We want to do something entirely else. Now, in this part of the chapter, what Swamiji is speaking about is the first thing he asks us to understand, once we get that there's a reason to try to understand, is the law of karma. The law of cause and effect in human life and in all of creation. Swamiji approaches it from two sides. He starts with Newton's law, For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. This is a scientific fact that has been verified again and again. We don't have to argue for it quite so much. Sort of almost it's become folklore. What goes around comes around, people say. They have lots of different ways of putting it. But there's a kind of, because we've been living with this idea of energy and this being this sort of energy system and the various 
um, discoveries of physics and so on, that energy doesn't really go anywhere, that it can't be lost, that it can't be canceled out. And because we've lived with Newton's law for a really long time, and because these spiritual principles are beginning to infiltrate, we at least have a passing acquaintance with the thought that there is such a thing as karma. And that word, that's one of those words that's just made it into the English language and you just see it everywhere. The more often these words are used sometimes, the less people actually understand what they mean. One of my absolute favorites of the, the word karma, making it into the popular culture, was a, uh, a, a paperback romance that I saw. I don't know if it was Barbara Cartland or whether it was just some other writer like her. But in a supermarket, there was a picture on the front and um, this woman is in the passion and embrace of some man and she's, you know, he's full of lust and love for her and she's full of lust and love for him and they're all sort of gripping each other in this picture but there's a shadowy figure of another man sort of somewhere on the cover, you know, and she looks slightly haunted by the other man and, and then the little title says, Was it Eloise's karma to be with Edward? <laughs> I thought, well, I guess we've made it into the mainstream. Not necessarily with full comprehension, but at least we're there. But the idea is that there are forces that we don't necessarily control that act on us that compel our behavior. And that's, that's part of the story. And the way Swamiji writes it about it in here, and the reason he writes about it, and the reason, as I reflect upon it, that the law of karma is such an integral part of the law of manifestation is, the law of manifestation is about the actions that we're going to take, the attitudes we're going to have, the thoughts that we're going to project. And we have to have some comprehension, some fundamental comprehension of how the world works. If we're going to activate the laws of manifestation in this world, we have to understand how manifestation works. And we also have to be um, entirely and wholeheartedly cooperative with the way things are. Um, The main reason that we don't succeed in our lives, globally, all of us, is because we're not in tune with what's trying to happen. We're not in tune with the way things are. Instead, we are um, fighting against what is, but not in a productive way. Let me just uh, back up a little bit. Every Sunday we do a ritual which is called the Festival of Light. And in the middle of that ritual, there's this story about a little bird. Swami Kriyananda himself, he wrote that festival more than 20 years ago when he was in a seclusion in Assisi, Italy. And he felt it was time to bring Ananda to a deeper focus and he thought a, a, a a ritual celebration on Sunday mornings would be a a big help. So he prayed and he started writing this and it came to him line by line. And when he came to the line and it just, the inspiration came to him, right? uh, A fledgling bird flew out of its nest. His own thought was, what's a fledgling bird got to do with it? And when we first introduced that festival, which was quite a long time ago now, there were a lot of people who had the same question. What does a fledgling bird have to do with it? And they got tired of hearing the story of this little bird and his desperate efforts to make it through the world. But the fact of the matter is that that section of the festival is the one that is uh, perhaps most often quoted. 
because that's the story, it's an allegorical story, that bird's brief day was like eons of our time, is one of the lines. We tell the story of this little bird's evolution of consciousness. Well, the first step of the bird's evolution is that a fledgling bird, he was sent out of the nest by his loving parents, and that is the soul being manifested and coming out into life, which is not human life at the beginning, but evolves up to it eventually. And that bird was told, you know, you have a holy mission. You are a part of all of creation, so you need to be fruitful and multiply your talents and your ability to give and share it with all because you're a part of everything. Well, what happens is the little bird, as we say, in flight for the first time, began to think, it would be foolish to share what I have. What else is wisdom, it says, if not to keep what is mine for myself? I've had a great deal of fun with that line because every so often Swamiji has trained us all in the habit of, of making jokes about attitudes that we might be tempted to have seriously so that if we've mocked them, then later we won't be able to quite embrace them with such wholeheartedness. So whenever um, a whole cheesecake appears on the dinner table or anything like that, or there's the concept of sharing comes up, I'll often say, sir, as you yourself have written, what else is wisdom if not to keep what is mine for myself? <laughs> of course, in the festival, it's a rhetorical question in which the answer is known. But still, those are his own words, aren't they? So, in any case, the bird says, what else is wisdom except to keep for myself what is mine? Because after all, I worked hard to get it. Here I am. And because he was in flight for the first time, he was just discovering his wings, he was feeling his power, and he was enjoying that power and wanting to keep that power. But then what happened is, he runs into turbulence. The winds come, the storms come, and he suddenly finds that he's, he's separated himself. Ah, oh, and it says, when he makes that decision, it calls, then we come to the second stage of the soul's long journey, and that stage is called the revolt. Okay, we've been commissioned, with this very clear understanding. We are part of the infinite spirit. Our job is to gather the gifts of the spirit and to disperse them freely. But we kind of like the feeling of doing it ourselves and of our own power, and look what I'm developing. So we revolt against that inner wisdom. And we go on this long journey, but then we get tossed by the storms. And then the first bit of understanding that comes to us is the wind says, surrender to me, or um, fly with me, let me help you. And so the bird then begins to learn to flow a little better, to surf with the tides of life. And he discovers, oh, he can ride the wind. You know, you instead of only asserting our, my own will, I'm going to work with things as they are. But then the, the next thing that happens is that night falls. And the bird is thought he was doing fine. He's cooperating with the tides of, of, of life. But then night comes. And what the bird says, quite simply, is how can I fly in this darkness? This is a very interesting stage that we all reach in our um, progression spiritually, which is, it's all fine as long as we can still keep control of it. You know, God says, you're a part of me and your job is to be my instrument. He says, no, I think I'll just follow my own plan. And then we discover that we at least have to cooperate with life a little bit, but we're still following our own plan. But then we become blind, which is that we can't always perceive exactly where we're going, what we're doing, what's going to happen next, how we can prevent that from happening, how we can make this happen. 
And when the, the bird makes that cry, the night whispers, fear not, he says. A beautiful phrase, fear not. Don't be afraid. Just because your little ego is losing control, and then the night says, peace awaits you in the unknown. In other words, once you stop fighting so hard to make it your way and also have faith that there's forces greater than yourself, then you find this wonderful state of peace. Now, what I love about that is the night doesn't even mention the dawn. And the night doesn't say anything like, here's a flashlight or here's a pair of night vision goggles and so you can still keep control It'll just be a little darker, but you're still in charge. He just says, surrender. Just don't be afraid of what you don't already know. Just surrender to it. And, And then it says, and after a time, that's such a lovely phrase, and after a time, after 100 million lifetimes, after 5 million years, who knows, after a time. And then in the festival, it describes the bird as the tiny rebel which is also a marvelous image. It's a good one to keep in your heart because sometimes you'll find yourself and you'll realize that you are behaving like the tiny rebel. You're standing there against the entire force of life and you're simply declaring that it's going to be different than it is. And trust me, no one's listening. Okay? After a time, the tiny rebel surrenders and he finds that the darkness was speaking the truth. That instead of it being more fearful, once you accept, the unknown, it's actually less so. And then it says we enter the third stage of this journey. The first is the mission, when we're manifested and sent out to, to become like the infinite. The second is when we revolt against that. The third is the quest. And the quest is when we begin to say, with humility and a genuine desire to know, not merely an intellectual curiosity that if you would just explain it to me all, then I would believe That's sort of like wanting to be able to fly through the darkness, but only if I'm allowed to see. If you just explained it to me in just the right way that would satisfy me completely according to my terms and my idea of what's right, then maybe I would cooperate. No, 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 no. You have to surrender to the reality of something you can't grasp. And that begins the quest. And the quest is where most of us are. I mean, we, we vacillate between the revolt and the quest, most of us. The quest is when we we actually ask sincere questions because we really want answers. There's a stage where you ask questions merely for the joy of asking questions. And as soon as one is answered, you just rush out and find another one because it's the asking the questions, that's the pleasure. But then there's the quest where you really want to know what is really true. And that's where we are here, and that's actually why we're sitting here, is because we're questing after genuine understanding. Now, once we really begin to quest, then hard truths come to us. And it's not really, at least I don't think, that the path is such an arduous thing, that the spiritual path is so difficult and so full of challenges. I've just never been a believer in the... Well, that's not entirely true. I was a believer in it for a while. Because I used to believe, now I don't believe anymore. As Swamiji put it to me, God doesn't really want you to be unhappy, Asha. That's your imposition on the situation you know, it's just sort of like I got, fell into that, which the Catholics call overscrupulosity. Just kept sort of narrowing and making the, my, my options narrower and narrower until I felt nothing but... It was just a game I was playing out completely in my own head, but I felt nothing but pressure and guilt and inability to function. But 
Finally, I broke out of it. The path itself is really a great joy because, not because no difficulties come to us, but because once we understand the basic ground rules of what life is really all about, then even when difficulties come, we know what we're doing and we know how to cope with them. To me, that's everything. A woman came to Swamiji for counseling when I was in, uh, in Gurgaon, India, where she happened to come. And she, she asked her questions just in a group. Many of us were sitting there, but it was the only chance she had, so she asked. And her questions were, I became a disciple and I started doing Kriya and then this happened to my husband and this happened to my sister and then I faced this difficulty. And she kept saying, why, why, why? Essentially what she was saying was, I started doing Kriya and God owed me an easier path, didn't he? You know, in other words, how can I fly in this darkness? I'm doing my part, he's supposed to do his, what are, what's going on here? Swami kept saying to her over and over, but she was not able to hear him. She was only in the revolt, not really in the quest although I hope later it had an effect. But he kept saying, but isn't it easier because you know what life is about and you know where you're going? And she just would completely pass that one by and just go in again and wanting him to say something. And finally he just essentially stopped talking. There was nothing more to say. Now, one of those fundamental, absolutely fundamental rules, I used to give a class when I was traveling before I came here, before we lived here, which is more than 20 years now, we basically did what we do here, but we did it as a traveling road show, my husband and I. We had a motorhome for a while, and it, the last hurrah before we took up this assignment was a trip from Seattle down from Seattle to Houston. It took us three months in this motorhome. It was marvelously fun. And uh, one of the classes I used to teach, and I love to teach, was called How the World Works and Why. It seemed like, why not just pick up a big topic? And it really just had a few fundamentals in it, but one of them was the law of karma. Because the law of karma is how the world works and why. And until we're going to be able to operate effectively in this world, we must purge from our conscious mind and from our subconscious as much as possible any resistance to this truth. Because any resistance we have to it will cause us to blame others, to, to seek an outlet, to, to try to make a deal. And the law of karma is, is so compellingly simple that we try to make it more complicated. Of course, the law of karma demands reincarnation. They're, they're twins. You really cannot have one without the other. And it says quite simply that the universe is, in a certain sense, and I'll, I'll balance this in a moment with another whole other point of view, but the world is entirely impersonal. There's the phrase metaphysics, which is, I suppose, well, it is exactly what it means. It means it's the physics of a higher world. Physics are are laws that they discover. You know, Newton threw the apple up, supposedly, or it fell off the tree. Every time you throw it up, it falls down. It just, no matter how many times you throw it up, it falls down. Because on this plane of existence, in this world, there are laws. You know, if you take the human body and you put it under water, you try to breathe in the water, the human body will die. There's just laws. You take your hand, you put it in a fire, the skin will will burn because they're laws. You can't break them. We don't sort of say, you know, there's the fire, and we we don't say to God, I'm going to give you one more chance and stick our hand in it one more time because it's a a law. We know it's a law. It never occurs to us to rebel against it because it would be pointless. We're totally persuaded that it's true. Now, 
Everything that you can see in the Bible, it says, as above, so below, which is a very profound statement, meaning anything you see manifested in the material world is a reflection of higher realities, that it's a consistent and organized universe all the way up beyond what we can see with our senses or perceive with ordinary human consciousness, but that doesn't mean the metaphysics of it aren't still just as um, clear-cut and just as immutable. And so the law of karma is simply this, that we are a, a field of energy and magnetism. That is simply what we are. And the energy that we are has manifested a physical body, but what animates that physical body is the magnetism, which is really the consciousness, that we have evolved over all the lifetimes that we've lived. That's why reincarnation has to go with it. And in fact, the reason we're born in all these circumstances, a man, a woman, uh, the race, the age, the culture that you have, is because the energetic magnetic pattern of our consciousness needed exactly this to express itself. Swamiji talking about the law of reincarnation in, in, in a very simple and clear way, and he was even talking about the way animals evolve. He said, through life experience, we expand our awareness. And awareness is a very interesting idea. I, I realized once that the summation of, our, of all of education of children is a gradual expansion of their awareness. You know, you, you have to teach them that they're not the only person in the universe. You have to teach them that if they pound on their, you know, on their kitty friends, that their kitty friends are going to pound back on them. You have to teach them where their mouth is so that they can eat. You have to teach them which is the front of their, of their clothes. You have to teach them then to read. They just become more and more aware of higher and higher and more subtle levels of life. And so do we. When does it stop? If we look at our own life in terms of whatever progression we have made so far, it has to be described that we have become more and more aware. Isn't that so? We've become aware of our own nature. We've been aware, become aware of the implications of our actions. We've become aware of the possibility of spirituality. We've become aware of new dimensions, new ways of expressing spirituality. We've become aware of, of uh, how you play a piano. All of it. It's an ever-increasing awareness is, is, how, is, is how we progress. And so different physical bodies up, up to the human level have greater and greater levels of, of awareness, capacity to express awareness. A worm, for example, living underground, just eating dirt and you know, having that dirt pass through it, it, it's not really aware of very much because its, it's physical capacity to relate is very limited. It can't really even come out of underground. It can't cross the street. It can't go to the library, certainly. And if it got to the library, it would just look for some dirt to burrow into because that worm form just can't express very much. So when the consciousness within that worm form is basically just done about everything a worm can do, it's time to progress to something like maybe a cockroach, you know, that can run around buildings and find out all kinds of things and live in the light. And in our human bodies, even though once you get to the human form, Master told us, Yogananda tells us, the human nervous system is capable of perceiving infinity. 
within this human body, the nervous system is, is so refined, can be refined to the point where we can experience infinite consciousness. That's what makes man the highest creature. Even though elephants have a very evolved society and dolphins are quite intriguing and monkeys are amazing, only the human, the physical human body actually can perceive infinity right in this body. So we don't need a new form once we get to the human body. But we kind of, oh, sometimes our human bodies wear out before we reach the potential of a human body. But still we expand our awareness to the point where this body no longer serves us, either because we've become so old and curmudgeonly we can't learn anything anymore. We've become too discouraged. We've just got too many, you know, complications. We've misused our bodies and we don't have any energy anymore. And so at a certain point you just have to shed it and start over again and keep working with it. Now, the... The experience of life is this... Oh, let me just... Let me find out where I was. Oh, yes, I was talking about how the consciousness within us manifests the form that's appropriate to what it is that we need, right. And then we don't come in as a clean slate because the record of all our experiences, according to that law of whatever it is that says that energy never goes anywhere (laughs) or can't be lost. Um, And these are... I'm not going to explain this in great detail. It's explained in other classes. Because we identify with our own actions, because we have ego and we identify with our limited self, every thought, feeling, action, reaction, everything that we do in life, we believe, we, 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 we identify with it. We think it's our own. So it hangs around the fundamental I. It hangs around the fundamental ego and is actually registered as a vortex of energy in the chakras according to the level of consciousness that it vibrates on. The chakras essentially are a a spectrum of consciousness from very gross materialistic commitment to infinite consciousness. And depending on what we do and where we are, for those who can read the chakras, you see predominant energy in whichever chakra is um, yours, or you see a pattern spread out. You know, Yogananda has these funny pictures. If people actually looked like what... like how their consciousness was arranged. You know, then he has pictures of some people would have huge stomachs and tiny little heads. You know, some people would have gigantic heads and very small hearts. Some people would have great big hearts and like no feet. You know, it's just like everybody would be different because we're focused in different ways. But instead we have essentially the same body. But for people who can read the energy, people all feel different. Their vibrations are different depending on what that pattern is. And when the physical body dies that pattern in the chakras is there. And it, it's the astral body. It goes to the astral world. It rests a while until it's ready to make a new physical body. Then it finds a womb and makes a body according to that pattern. And then that pattern, because this is an energy universe, we're walking around at all times pulsing with this energy which creates magnetic fields. And absolutely everything that happens in this universe is an interaction of these magnetic fields. And so we think that it's all a fixed reality, but it isn't at all. It's just an energy soup, just moving, even inanimate objects. Everything is just energy. And, and humans are, are 
are of, uh, the most powerful, the most advanced species because we have the most self-consciousness and the most ability to direct our energy according to our, our self-conceived idea of what we ought to do. And so that's why humans dominate planets and the planet. They dominate the trees, they dominate the animals and uh, many different things because we can use our willpower as we choose. And we're always manifesting this energy and the universe is responding to us. That's all that's ever happening. No matter what form it takes, by the time it becomes that beautiful woman who you think is your soulmate, who you see only fleetingly on the bus and turns out to be married to somebody else, you know, all of that is just like these forces of magnetism coming and moving apart like that. Now, if we really believe this is true, Just think how differently we should behave in this world. Because it's always the magnetism that we are um, expressing, receiving, generating. That's what's determining everything. There's, There's no other destiny than that. Now, the other part of that is, whatever we are presently experiencing, plain and simple, is the result of whoever we made ourselves up to that point so that we would vibrate in exactly that way, so exactly these things would happen to us. Whether we're healthy, wealthy, sick, whether we have a happy relationship, whether we accidentally married a mad person, you know, who makes our life miserable, whether we're lonely, whether we're talented, untalented, afraid. And the, the, the implications of this are very, very challenging. Because, you see, there's no exceptions to it. You can't just say everything in the universe is a result of magnetism and karma except that. That was just somebody just really doing something awful to me, right? Everything is the result of energy and magnetism except those people who are suffering over there. They shouldn't be suffering and you should stop it. You know, it's like it's either true or it isn't. I, I was at a program that Swami Kriyananda gave in which he introduced this uh, system which he calls superconscious living, which we treat, uh, teach here periodically. It's a magnificent sort of holistic view of life. It's a, and, and it's just sort of a, like a little subset within everything else that we teach, but it's a great little system. And Swami introduced it in 1979, I think, or maybe it was 1980, in uh, San Francisco at the Palace of Fine Arts. We did this huge promotion, and then we rented the Palace of Fine Arts. We had many, many hundreds of people there. And Swami gave, introduced this magnificent system. It was really fun. But he said, he was starting because he st- this is where you have to start. He was starting with the law of karma. Because unless you accept the law of karma, you're always going to be trying to wiggle out of it. You're never really going to commit yourself. You're never really going to commit yourself to changing yourself as long as you think there's some other explanation for what's going on. Because changing yourself is really hard. And it's just much easier to blame. Isn't it? Feels easier, at least. It's, it isn't. Because when we blame, we just postpone the inevitable day when we get over it. But still, it's just easier, especially when challenging things come. So Swami's there, he's talking about the law of karma and all of this. And, and right into the middle of the room, he says, you know, if this is true, it always has to be true. I mean, take, for example, the Holocaust. Now, of course, I know Swamiji, and I know he doesn't have a prejudiced bone in his body. He said, you have to say the Jews deserved it. That's what he said. Oh, my God. The room, the room just exploded. You know, I mean, it was like a, 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 um, a spontaneous combustion. Everybody just went, oh, that's what he did. Oh, like that. You know? 
It wasn't even like they were articulate. I mean, that somebody would actually say something like that out loud. But he got their attention, definitely. He did several things after that. The first of which was he said, well, of course you realize you're all hearing me say that deserve is a punishment. He said, you also, if you get a great reward, you also deserve that, don't you? He said, it just simply says that they merited it. It was the right thing for them. It was an appropriate thing to have happen. Now, of course, the human mind, the ego mind, absolutely rebels against all that suffering. Naturally, we don't like to suffer because what is the goal of life? To avoid suffering and experience happiness. But... There's another side to that, which is many, many people, many, many people made enormous spiritual progress in those camps because they had nothing except themselves in their own consciousness. Now, if because of some great challenge that's given to you, you suddenly rise to heights that you never knew were even obtainable to you, you shed for all time limitations that have been plaguing you for many incarnations and causing you endless grief, and the process of doing that appears to be difficult and suffering, is it really suffering? Is it really bad karma? I was in a... My, my friend who's an Episcopal priest, he's retired now, and uh, he was in Seattle, Washington, and he belonged to a Christian Jewish... Um, uh, whatever those groups are, you know, like we all get together and we try to understand each other. So he, was, he belonged to a Christian Jewish group, and he thought it would be such a lark to take a Jewish yogi to his Christian Jewish group. So he took me, you know. And I, I'm, I'm, I was not raised with a, I was raised with a very light touch of Judaism, but enough so that I know the story really well. And uh, so we're there, and the Jews, with all due respect, always feel that unless you understand the Holocaust, unless you really understand that everybody's been trying to kill the Jews forever, you can never understand the Jews. And that's... I'm sure you've heard that joke that all Jewish holidays are the same. They tried to kill us. They didn't succeed. Let's eat. <laughs> we survive. Um, so the, the rabbis had given to the other clergy people all these different uh, diff, you know, things you were supposed to read. And um, I, I was given them and I read them and one of them was just incredible. One of them was some rabbi had actually had the courage to say that that period of time was the shining hour for the Jewish people because absolutely everything was taken away from us except our faith in God and it was our divinely given opportunity to stand before our own conscience, before God and before the world and to declare here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. I mean, it was magnificent. It was by a Holocaust survivor wrote that. Nobody in the room wanted to talk about that one. (laughs) They all wanted to talk about all the others. Every so often I'd sort of try to get a little attention to this one, but nobody wanted to hear it. It was all about, you know, all that angst that people like to have, that solutionless angst, which is what most people do as a progression away from indifference, but not yet to the level of transcendence. And a great deal of in the churches these days, is solutionless angst. And we sort of are religious because we care. But we really don't know what to do, so we just do it like this. But the law of karma is quite different. The law of karma says everything is an opportunity to expand my consciousness and draw closer to divine law. Now, 
in this lesson, and I've been extrapolating from this lesson rather than exactly reading what's here. Swamiji states, and he's quoting the scriptures and quoting various other sources, everything that happens to us is to teach us the truth on a higher and higher level. And the more we learn from our life experiences, the more we find that instead of suffering more, we suffer less. And that our state of inner freedom and our bliss, our capacity to love, our self-mastery increases. Now, it's always good to take very high statements and just bring them down to some small level of reality that we ourselves have experienced. Isn't that true? Haven't all of us just been pounded by things we... Like, if we had had a chance before they started, we might have said, how about no, Lord? Let this cup pass from me. That's a good line. Do you want to hear it You know, now? Maybe not. But nonetheless, when it descends upon us and we face it courageously, it invariably proves to be our making. Isn't that so? It just proves to be, it makes us who we are. And we look back and we realize, God, I was such a wuss before this happened. And look at me now. I didn't know I had that in me. I didn't know I could finish law school with, you know, all on my own. I didn't know I could go out and get that job. I didn't realize that even though I have headaches every day, I could still function. I didn't know that I could write that book or whatever it might be. And then we feel so strong, don't we? Again, so it's the same question. But, um, oh, so what, so what the, through Teshwar, all the masters say, that the law of karma, which is that we always have to experience the consequences of our own behavior is just a way of herding us closer and closer to harmony with divine law. You know, sometimes you have to let the little child put his hand in the fire or you have to at least let the child get real close. You just say, don't touch it, don't touch it, don't touch it. As soon as he's alone, he touches it, right? And it's really not a bad thing because then he knows, wow. And he says to his little brother, don't touch it. You know, and it's not just a dogma. It's because he touched it. So God can say, you know, thou shalt, covet not, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, but you covet your neighbor's wife and you blow your life to pieces out of something really, really stupid. And then you think, maybe that wasn't such a good idea. But you know it because you know it in your own heart that it's true. Thou shalt not kill, so you kill. You spend your life in prison with a bunch of really sleazy characters and your whole life is really just ruined. Maybe that wasn't such a good idea. And so we... And, and, and then they get, but you know, those things are obvious because we're not, we're not taking vows now. I won't murder, I won't murder, I won't murder. But there's people in the world who have to do that. We're trying to say things like, I'll trust God, I will tithe, I'll do my kriyas, I won't get mad, I won't yell at the bad drivers, whatever it is. You know, we're trying hard to pull our energy toward what we know to be the happiness producing way of behavior. And if we're very, very lucky, every time we do something wrong, we get smashed. It's, it's very, very good to do something wrong and get smashed. And the faster you get smashed, the more blessed you are. Because the more likely you are to have a clue what caused it. Right? The problem is, however, we're not that lucky because of what Yogananda calls the conflicting cross-currents of ego. Because we can outrun our mistakes because we have virtues that are strong enough to get us ahead. Like I've commented before, like if you're a big kid on a two-wheeler and you knock over the kid on the tricycle, no matter how mad that kid on the tricycle is, you can probably run away from him before he can smash you. Except 15 years later when he owns the company and you want the job. 
And then all of a sudden, he says, not on your life, buddy. You don't remember me, but I remember you, you know. Now, reincarnationally, that's also what happens. I mean, think how... I I have my list of regrets. I'm sure that everyone does. I try not to. I try to let them go. But there's been a few things that I've done in this life that I really wish I hadn't done. And some of them have been hurtful to other people. And I know that they're floating out there. Or I don't have to know that they're floating because they've hit me in the head on repeated occasions. It's not a a mystery. But look at, at lifetimes where people make really bad mistakes and never get a chance to rectify them. Don't worry. You'll get a chance to rectify them, you know. And so whatever is finding you at the present moment is finding you because it's attached to you and it's always been you. So what this causes, if when you really sink deep in yourself and just accept it, is you give up the revolt. You just give up wasting any energy thinking that somebody ought to do something. You think, well, somebody is doing something. They're doing it to me. You know, right now, I had the funniest experience once. I was accused of something, something not attractive. I was innocent, I tell you, absolutely innocent. And I was, I was absolutely innocent. But I could have done it. (laughs) It just just happened that I didn't, but I was perfectly capable of doing it. And after a, a short period, I finally said, you know, I got away with it, obviously, sometime. And so now I am, quote, falsely accused. Because I have to learn. I have to really experience the consequences of everything. Now just imagine for a moment what your life is like if you never revolt against anything that happens to you. But, but say just like a scavenger hunter, something, oh, there's the next clue. There's the next clue. Look, I've lost my job. Look, I'm evicted from my house. There's the next clue. The next clue to whatever it is that I need to do to get into deeper and deeper harmony with what is. Now, if we're going to manifest, we have to be working in harmony with. And we have to be impersonal enough to be able to perceive a very simple principle which is called what's trying to happen. In other words, where is the force of the universe willing to take us? It's not that we're passive in the front face of that, but we can't be in revolt against it. We have to be moving with it. Now, There's a couple of other factors here which are really remarkable, which is that A follows B karmically, except if you really love God, and then sometimes God rearranges the alphabet. The law of karma always applies except when it doesn't. And the only thing that can break it is divine grace. And it's a a very interesting fact. That's why... um, being on a spiritual path and having a guru is considered such a grace because it's the only thing that can break the karmic law. I want to ask a little question here. Should we take a little break? Okay, let's take a short break and then we'll come back and finish this. There are certain homework assignments associated with these lessons and I still am not entirely into a rhythm, this being only the second class of what I consider is going to be quite a long cycle, at least months of studying these. I feel that I'm sort of like mostly done with this first lesson, but I'm not really quite sure we'll finish it tonight, so please read lesson number two for next week, but we might not get to it. Because I haven't yet really um, had the opportunity for anybody else to really respond or comment. So I'm going to give you a homework assignment that is not exactly in here, because I'm not sure how much I'm going to cover 
of what is really the first sentence here. So long as you breathe the free air of earth, you are under obligation to render grateful service. And all of the homework assignments are more associated with that. So I wanted to just give you another homework assignment. And I I would really like you to try to practice this. This course, you know, I tell people that when they ask me what what they should take in order to get involved in Ananda, I ask them whether or not they're willing to do homework. If they're willing to do homework, they can take the meditation classes. If they want classes without homework, then they can take different ones. But meditation classes require homework because if you just come learn the meditation techniques and never practice on your own, you never get anywhere. So you have to be ready to do something. This course is in between having homework and not having homework because the the point of this class is to um, explain principles to you, which, of course, I've been doing at great length these last two weeks. But the actual final intention of this course is that we will integrate this new understanding because, as you recall, this is material success through yogic principles. And, I mean, I called it manifesting through the power of yoga. But we're really trying to to understand sufficiently that we can focus our own energy and willpower toward bringing about righteous goals. We need to understand what righteous goals are and then we have to understand how to do them. And I assure you, that transformation will not take place if you don't do some homework. And at this point, that homework is a lot about trying to integrate into your way of thinking just a few very simple ideas, like what if the law of karma were completely true? What if every time anything happens to you during the time between this class and the next class, that you you try to see how would I respond to this if I felt that this were a perfectly appropriate gift to me, that God is taking a special interest in me and trying to help me learn how the world works and why so that I will be a happier and better person. And feeling as if everything that's handed to us, especially not merely the bad things, the good things also, but everything that's handed to us, especially things we might rebel against, what if it's a special gift to me? How would life be different? How would you behave differently? In fact, I was just talking during the break with someone and um, the simple advice had been offered, which is relax. Just relax. Don't worry so much about yourself. Just relax. I mean, what would happen if we felt that everything is being sent to us for, as an opportunity for us to learn something we don't already know and that we're going to learn something we really want to know that's going to be enormously beneficial to us, everything. When I was first introduced to the concept of reincarnation, I was about 18 when I first heard about it. I mean, I'd heard about it, but when I was first presented to me in such a way that I was going to have to take it seriously, I really didn't have any idea whether it was true or not. In fact, at that time, our guest facility, our, the collective Ananda Hour, um, which is in Nevada City in the Ananda Village, the first community there, I lived there for 16 years, starting in 1971. And we would receive guests at the meditation retreat, which is distant from the village by six miles. It's still there. It's a very isolated place. And there's three miles of very bumpy, unpaved road. And I was giving a Saturday morning class there. And somebody had uh, hitchhiked there. And he showed up for the class. And he listened to the class. And I think the class was on reincarnation. And I you know, talked about reincarnation. And then afterwards, he got a ride with me back. And we were going down this long, bumpy road. And it was sort of like when we got in the middle of the most isolated place. 
And he almost like looked around to make sure that like nobody could listen. He leaned over and he said, do you really believe that stuff? (laughs) I said, well, not when I first heard it. (laughs) But I said, when I first heard it, it was presented to me from sources that I respected too much to discard. And so I was trapped. I didn't really know it was true, but I couldn't say it wasn't true. And people that I respected thought it was true, so what was I going to do? So I behaved as if. I started taking the idea of having had previous incarnations and all of the implications of that. And in many life situations, I asked myself how this situation would be explained differently if there was such a thing as reincarnation. Meaning, you know, I I like this person, I dislike that one, I feel strangely at home here. This little baby seems like an old friend. You know, this child is crippled, this one is so talented. What if there was reincarnation as an explanation? And what simply happened to me is I kept applying it and I kept applying it and applying it for a number of years until it just persuaded me of its own inherent logic. Everything else just left me floundering without an ounce of explanation. But this worked. And of course the law of karma gets all involved in that. So that's the practice that I want you to try this week. You know, everything that happened, even when you see some, you know, pathetic homeless person on the street just wandering around. See, people think karma means you don't have any compassion. That's not at all true. And that's the other part of it that I haven't really reached tonight and I probably won't, which is that we also, once we understand that this is all just big energy soup and we're just an energy pattern interacting, where is my edge? Where does it stop being me? Where does their reality cease to be my reality? I saw a marvelous picture projected by this man whose name I can't remember who's enjoying a great deal of popularity with good cause because he's uniting biology and spirituality. The Biology of Belief is the book he wrote, whatever the man's name is. And I heard him speak because um, I was told he would be fascinating, which he was. And he, um, he was projecting slides while he was speaking. And there was a picture and it was like a happy little group of people And first he had a photograph of the happy group, and then he reduced it to stick figures. And then he said, but this is what it really is. And he drew like, like almost like a thermal photograph of of everybody's energy field as far as it could be measured. And he had all of the figures up there in the same arrangement. But what they were, instead of being physical bodies now, was these, these thermographs, if that's the actual word, of these different colors of energy field. And boy, they were all just smearing into each other. You know, this neat little there you are and here I am was just a complete myth because of all this reaching out. And how far does it go? How far does it come back into us? You know, it's it's a whole different way of, of feeling and living in the world. And that's where the necessity to render grateful service begins to come in. But I want to give it more attention than that. But when we, I was starting to say, when we see someone on the street, like who who might either frighten us or whose condition is intensely unsettling to us. Um, There's a man named Daniel Brinkley who wrote a book called Saved by the Light, fascinating book. He had intense um, near-death experience. He died, clinically died for a long period of time and went off and had visions and saw other worlds. And when he came back, he was completely different. Plus, he had all this psychic power that he hadn't had before. But he, um, he's a very... I, I think he's still living. He, when I knew him, met him, he was one of the most ebullient, outgoing. He was probably the most extroverted person I'd ever seen. He's just um, was an amazing person, and he had this 
complete sense that whoever comes in front of me is for a purpose and, I, and what, what do I have to fear? He would always jokingly say, what are you going to do, kill me? He would say like that. <laughs> but his way of relating to, to street people was extraordinarily instructive to me because there's just a person standing there who's, who's had some, you know, interesting karmic cycle and the, the God is trying to teach them where to go next. That doesn't mean necessarily that you should befriend them if they're dangerous, if they haven't really learned things that people need to learn, or if it's too frightening to you. But still, you just look right at them and realize they're just living through certain karmic conditions, that's all. They set certain things in motion, and this is the consequences of it. When my parents were in the last years of their life, some of you who've been with Ananda longer got to live through that cycle with me, I actually... I, was, I, I don't keep track of time very well at all. My, when my father died and he left us some inheritance, David bought a new car. So the year of that car was the year that my parents died. I was trying to figure out what that was, maybe four years ago now. Um, my mother had Parkinson's for a dozen years and died of it eventually. Parkinson's is not pretty. My father, um, just the burden of having to take care of my mother gradually just caused him to take a, a holiday, is how I put it. And he became gradually uh, less and less cogent and finally entered what turned out to be for him a, a very sweet and happy state of dementia for a few years. But the transition was not easy. And they lived in Los Angeles and I ended up being the primary caregiver from here, which, believe me, is not easy. And so I was commuting to Los Angeles. And I didn't know that I had any karma with my parents, but it turned out that I did. I had a lot and I had to learn a lot. It was a very tough and interesting experience. So I began to pray. Really, I just began to pray for them to die. That seemed like a really good idea to me because I don't have any fear of death and they seem to be having a pretty tough time. Well, let me back up a step. At first, when I was having to deal with the whole reality of their situation, I was totally freaked. I think is the only way I could say. I was just freaked out by my mother's illness, by my father's lack of mental stability, by just everything. And I finally realized, just one day, I was thinking, Asha, this is their karma. I mean, you know, these are great teachings if you remember to use them. That's why I'm telling you to use them this week. It's their karma. I mean, it wasn't even that I was rebelling against it. I was just overwhelmed by it. And more than that, I thought, it's their karma. In other words, this is the natural result of the energy they've put out and it fits them. You know, it's not my karma to suddenly flip into being my father losing his mental faculties at that point because it's not my karma. You know, my karma will lead me someplace else that somebody else will think is completely daft, but it'll fit me because we get into our karma, you know, like this. <laughs> and then when we finally arrive, it's just where we were going. And I suddenly, just like this incredible sense of relaxation came over me. This is completely appropriate. If it, if it wasn't appropriate, they would never have worked themselves into these positions. And when I realized it was completely appropriate, all that uh, rebellion, which is really what it was, went away. And I've applied that many times when I see people on the street in very peculiar circumstances. I just look at them, if I can, in the moment, and if it's appropriate, just very cheerfully, just thinking, wow, look where you got yourself. You know, just like, so what? You inched your way into it and now you are really somewhere maybe you didn't intend to go. 
And maybe you did. Who knows? Sometimes a lot of those people, just like as Swamiji said, you know, sometimes it's you just it's too much for you. So you just go into an alternate universe. You either go there through drugs or through or through insanity. You just become insane because it's just too much. So I'll just make up my own world and I'll just play in my own world because that world out there is way too much for me. And then you get to experience the consequences of it's perfectly appropriate. And there's another element of that, which is, um, this is all your homework assignment, I'm realizing. Oh, about praying for my parents to die. I'll just back that up a little bit, just so I won't leave that one hanging. I finally realized it was just, I was just praying for my own convenience. (laughs) That was it. And so then I began to pray instead, with a great deal of intensity. Divine Mother, I do not know what you're doing with them, but you had better... You know, you had better help them to figure it out because I can't handle this much longer. I mean, this commuting to L.A., it was just too crazy. You know, so I'm at the end of my rope, so you better speed up their learning process so they can get through this. Give them, I said, I used to pray, give them the wisdom, the receptivity, and the humility to learn whatever it is you're trying to teach them. In other words, it's their karma. Karma is an act of love by the divine trying to tell us where we're supposed to be and how to get there. And then, then again, all the rebellion went out of it. The effort did not go out of it. The effort remained at a maximum level until they both passed away. Well, until my mother passed away. Um, but the revolt went away. And when the revolt goes away, all of a sudden, everything gets much clearer and easier. Tremendous amount of our energy is lost in rebellion. It's like, I'm not going to do it. I don't want to do it. I can't do it. I shouldn't have to do it. They should have done it. (laughs) You know, whatever it is. Now, let's see. Oh, yes, there was one last thought. And this is about applying the karmic law to others. A friend of mine, uh, 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 friends of hers experienced a great tragedy. And she felt extremely overwhelmed by her um, empathy for what the people who'd actually suffered the tragedy were going through. And as a consequence, was very discouraged and depressed and upset. And I suggested, you know, you ought to respect those people more than that. They're your friends. You ought to respect them. You ought to respect the fact that if God sends it to them, it's appropriate for them and that they will have the power to get through it. If you crumble in the face of their difficulty, what you're really saying is they don't have the strength to cope. And in a lot of my own personal efforts to save the world for many years of my life earlier, I finally realized was because I didn't respect other people enough to think that they could manage. I thought I was the only one who could manage. You understand? Now, if people, if you really respect people and know that they can manage, then... You can still help them, but you help them courageously, joyfully, with a positive attitude. Think how helpful that is, right? Because all your fear, fear not, peace awaits you in the unknown. If the karmic law is true, either visually, mentally, in yourself and the people around you, just try to apply it. See what happens. And then when we come back next week, maybe we can talk about that at the beginning of class. Okay? I think that'll do us for now. So thank you all very much.